Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guests this episode are communal founders, organic farmers, and stars of the BBC reality show Castaways, Peter and Sheila Jowers. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Corona and the Black Plague. The science is better, but the leadership, meh. Something is happening to humanity right now that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. A plague that is affecting all of us. Suddenly it's not something you just see in a film or read of in a book, a distant rumble endured by other people in a faraway country. The coronavirus is here now, and it is terrorizing the whole world. How are we dealing compared to how people responded to past pandemics? Are we being led by smarter people? I'm a very stable genius. By people who are countering with brains and generosity? Are our leaders any better than superstitious people from the Dark Ages? We've heard a lot about the Spanish flu lately, the worldwide outbreak of influenza at the end of World War I that killed somewhere between 20 and 100 million people. It was like the swine flu, (coughs) which almost came back a decade ago, an H1N1 virus, and infected about 500 million people around a quarter of the Earth's population at the time. Unlike most flu strains, which usually kill the very young and the very old, the Spanish flu resulted in a higher-than-expected death rate for young adults. Oddly, they may have suffered more because H1N1 triggered cytokine storms, toxic explosions of the immune systems of normally healthier young people. By 1918 or so, people knew how to avoid each other in an epidemic. They weren't medically illiterate. Why can't read? Even so, they suffered staggering losses. But when the Black Plague hit Europe around 1348, people were completely unprepared and frankly clueless. (laughs) Perhaps many of you have seen that Black Death European Tour 1347 to 1351 (laughs) t-shirt. meant to show a pseudo-heavy metal tour across plague-stricken Europe in the 14th century. It's funny, but it hides a truly scary reality. (laughs) To get further perspective on corona and on pandemics generally, I just reread Barbara Tuchman's thorough and downright scary look at the plague in her 1980 book, A Distant Mirror where she devotes an extraordinary chapter to the story of the plague hitting Europe in the middle of the 14th century. The chapter is called, This is the End of the World, the Black Death. And it is a thoroughly frightening look at a horror which had no precedent in European civilization. Tuchman describes the Black Death's arrival in Europe at the port of Messina in Sicily in October 1347. 
a Genoese trading ship listlessly entered the harbor with dead and dying men at the oars. The diseased sailors showed strange black swellings about the size of an egg or an apple in the armpits and the groin. The swellings oozed blood and pus and were followed by spreading boils and black blotches on the skin from internal bleeding. As the disease spread, other symptoms of continuous fever and spitting of blood appeared. The victims coughed and sweated heavily and died even more quickly, within three days or less, sometimes within 24 hours. People were further horrified because everything that issued from the body, breath, sweat, blood from the buboes and lungs, bloody urine, and blood-blackened excrement smelled foul. Depression and despair accompanied the physical symptoms, and before the end, some said death is seen seated on the face. The disease was the bubonic plague, which showed symptoms in two forms, one that infected the bloodstream, causing the buboes and internal bleeding, and was spread by contact, and a second, more virulent pneumonic type that infected the lungs and was spread by respiratory infection. So lethal was the disease that cases were known of persons going to bed well and dying before they woke, and of doctors catching the illness at a bedside and dying right in front of the patient. To more enlightened Europeans in the 14th century, there had been rumors of a distant, terrible plague supposedly arising in China and spreading through Central Asia to India and all of Asia Minor by the mid-1340s. But in the absence of a concept of contagion, no serious alarm was felt in Europe. And this is their new hoax! Until the trading ships brought these dead and dying sailors. Suddenly Europeans, like people in Asia before them, saw a plague accomplishing its kill within four to six months and then fading, except in the larger cities, where, spreading into the close-quartered population, it abated during the winter, only to reappear in spring, I'm and rage for another six months. Although the death rate was erratic, the overall estimate of modern demographers seems to be that at least a third of Eurasia was killed by this bacillus. The famous Italian writer Boccaccio, writing in the introduction to his contemporary account, Decameron, tells us that in Florence, The calamity chilled the hearts of men. One man shunned another. Kinsfolk held aloof. Brother was forsaken by brother, oftentimes husband by wife. Nay, what is more and scarcely to be believed, fathers and mothers were found to abandon their own children to their fate, untended, unvisited, as if they had been strangers. Contemporary reports speak of the sick dying too fast for the living to bury. Corpses were dragged out of homes and left in front of doorways. Morning light revealed new piles of bodies. Amid accumulating death and fear of contagion, people died without last rites and were buried without prayers, a prospect that terrified the last hours of the stricken. The public cry soon became, bring out your dead. In some places, whole villages were obliterated. When the last survivors, too few to carry on, moved away, a deserted village might sink back into the wilderness and disappear from the map altogether, leaving only a grass-covered, ghostly outline to show where mortals once had lived. In enclosed places such as monasteries and prisons, the infection of one person often meant the death of all. The poor were more susceptible due to poverty and hard lives. 
Close contact and lack of sanitation were unrecognized but huge factors. In the countryside, peasants dropped dead on the roads, in the fields, and in their hovels, leaving wheat uncut and livestock untended. Yet even the animals were not spared. According to Tuchman, quote, oxen and asses, sheep and goats, pigs and chickens ran wild, and they too succumbed to the pest. English sheep, bearers of precious wool, died throughout the country. The canon of Leicester Abbey reported 5,000 dead in one field alone, their bodies so corrupted by the plague that neither beast nor bird would touch them. Though the death rate was higher among the poor folk, the known and great died too. Cardinals, princes, and rich merchants. Among the clergy and doctors, the mortality was naturally high because of the nature of their professions. Clerical mortality varied with rank, and the Pope survived mostly because his attendants kept fires burning all around him for the duration. Women appear to have been more vulnerable than men, perhaps because, more housebound, they were more exposed to fleas. In Florence, Giovanni Villani, the great historian of his time, died at 68 in the midst of an unfinished sentence. I dure questo pistolenza fino a translated, in the midst of this pestilence, there came an end. Downright eerie. Ignorance of the cause increased the sense of horror. The 14th century had no suspicion of the real carriers, rats and fleas, perhaps because they were so omnipresent. Fleas, though a common nuisance, are never mentioned in contemporary plague accounts, and rats only incidentally, although at the time they were commonly associated with disease. The actual plague bacillus, Pastorella pestis, remained undiscovered for another 500 years. Living alternately in the stomach of the flea and the bloodstream of the rat, the flea's host, the bacillus in its bubonic form, was transferred to humans and animals by the bite of either rat or flea. The mutation that made the bacillus suddenly so horrible remains unknown, but it spread quickly along caravan routes like the Silk Road. In October 1348, Philip VI, King of France, asked the medical faculty at the University of Paris for a report on the affliction that seemed to threaten human survival. With careful rhetorical argumentation, the doctor said it was caused by a triple conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in the 40th degree of Aquarius, said to have occurred on March 20th, 1345. Yeah, that's it, dig it. At the time, the theory of humors, along with astrology, governed practice, so all human temperaments were considered to belong to one or another of the four humors, sanguine, phlegmatic, choleric, and melancholic. In various combinations with the signs of the zodiac, each of which governed a particular part of the body, the humors and constellations determined the degrees of bodily heat, moisture, and the proportion of masculinity and femininity in each person. Wow! If a doctor could guess right, he could ostensibly cure you by various measures designed to draw poison or infection from the body. By bleeding, purging with laxatives or enemas, lancing or cauterizing the buboes or applications of hot plasters. But sadly, 
none of this hocus-pocus was of much use in 1348. There was some understanding of quarantine, and flight was the chief recourse of those who could afford it or arrange it. Oh, get the fuck out of here. As soon as Pisa and Luca were afflicted, a neighboring town forbade any of its citizens who might be visiting or doing business in the stricken cities to return home, and likewise forbade the importation of wool. Quote, the rich fled to their country places like Boccaccio's young patricians of Florence, who settled in a pastoral palace, removed on every side from the roads with wells of cool water and vaults of rare wines. Yet for most people, there was only one explanation, the wrath of God. God, there's got to be an explanation for all this. You want an explanation? God is Pissed. Such a horrible plague could only be seen as divine punishment upon mankind for its sins. There were penitent processions authorized at first by the Pope, some lasting as long as three days, some attended by as many as 2,000, which everywhere accompanied the plague, sadly helping to spread it. Barefoot in sackcloth, sprinkled with ashes, weeping, praying, tearing their hair, carrying candles and relics, sometimes beating themselves with whips. Penitents wound through the streets, imploring the mercy of the Virgin and saints at their shrines. Self-flagellation was intended to express remorse and put right the sins of all. The flagellants saw themselves as redeemers who, by reenacting the scourging of Christ upon their own bodies and making the blood flow, would atone for human wickedness and earn another chance for mankind. But suddenly and horribly, these flagellants turned on the Jews. Quote, in every town they entered, the flagellants rushed for the Jewish quarter, trailed by citizens howling for revenge upon these supposed poisoners of the well. Jews were brutally persecuted both by groups like the flagellants and by authorities across Europe, especially in Germany and the Low Countries. End quote. By the time the plague had passed, few Jews were left in those areas. But within a year or so, even the church had finally had its fill of the flagellants. A papal bull of October 1349 called for their dispersal and arrest. By 1357, they were mostly suppressed. Yet the plague had changed Europe in every way. The population of Europe was decimated during the two years of the plague. Economically, the decrease in population caused by the plague on the whole favored the peasant. Peasants found their rents reduced and even relinquished for one or more years by landowners desperate to keep their fields in cultivation. The shortage of labor brought the plague's greatest social disruption, a concerted demand for higher wages. Peasants, as well as artisans, craftsmen, clerks, and priests discovered the lever of their own scarcity. In many guilds, artisans struck for higher pay and shorter hours. In an era where social conditions were regarded as fixed, such action was downright revolutionary. Today, most no longer believe that disease is the wrath of God. However, we still have many who want societal problems eliminated by some sort of explosive divine intervention. I'm not the sick trying to get healed. I'm the healed and the devil's trying to give me the flu. We have leaders who would willingly dump scientific method and replace it with their own self-serving gut instincts. Although we now face one of the gravest threats of the modern era, a pandemic which will inevitably cause hundreds of thousands of deaths, and a climate change crisis that threatens the planet. 
we are plagued by willful stupidity and malpractice and numbing denial of the realities of science. You'd have to show me the scientists because they have a very big political agenda. As a society, we know better. We don't have 14th century Europe's excuse of just having exited the primitive dark ages. We have doctors and public health experts who know what they are dealing with. What we lack is leadership that looks beyond self-interest. No, I don't take responsibility at all. That is rational and progressive, is willing to trust scientific method, and fights for a quick and just end to the corona crisis. Perhaps this time, we will be able to say, this will be the beginning of a new world, a kinder world, a world we can share together. We lost John Prine recently, one of the great folk singers of the last 50 years. A guy who was called the Mark Twain of songwriting. A guy who influenced numerous songwriters across the world with his often funny, often bittersweet, and always wise lyrics and simple songs. Here's what Ken Tucker of NPR's Fresh Air had to say about Mr. Prine when he passed away. He liked honky-tonk country music, rhythm and blues, and the funkier side of folk music. A mixture that rendered his own compositions unclassifiable, catchy as hell, and not especially commercial. He won two Grammys in the folk category and pioneered the independent label movement in Nashville with the 1981 formation of his own label, Oh Boy Records. For a guy who came across as a guy's guy, it's significant that women connected strongly to his melodies and lyrics, as can be heard in the way Bonnie Raitt sings Angel from Montgomery, and Iris Dement sings her duet with Prine, In Spite of Ourselves. In 2018, he closed out his album The Tree of Forgiveness with a song called When I Get to Heaven. It's a typically cheerful, puckish description of what a John Prine liberated from Earth would do as soon as he dies. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand, thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band, check into a swell hotel. Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm gonna kiss that pretty girl on the tilt of the world. Cause this old man is going to town. Grandpa wore his suit to dinner nearly every day. No particular reason, he just dressed that way. Brown necktie and a matching vest, and both his wingtip shoes. He built the closet on our back porch and put a penny in a burned-out piece. Brian was a working-class boy who grew up near Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. His dad was a tool-and-die maker who was active in union politics and became president of the local steelworkers' union. 
Brian admitted he had ugly grades upon graduating from high school in 1964 and that he'd better get a steady job. He found work as a mailman in the Chicago area. And, and you also, you, uh, you were a public servant, weren't you? You were a mailman? I was a mailman for six years. When was this? Before or after? It was before I started singing. Wow. Uh, were you a good mailman? Well, I got the mail out there, you know, somehow. There's not a whole lot to think about when you're out on a mail route. Yeah. Is it, uh, to me, it seems like it's, uh, it's hard, uh, physically difficult work, and, and tedious. Was that a problem for you? That, the weather, and the dogs. Yeah. Otherwise... <laughs> Were you ever injured in the line of duty? Yeah, I got bit in the backside once. I dragged the dog about a half a block down the street. <laughs> <laughs> what, were you full of Novocaine, or what? <laughs> he wouldn't let go. Oh, he wouldn't let yeah. go. After a couple of years, Prine was drafted and then stationed in Stuttgart, West Germany, where he said his contribution to the U.S. Army was, quote, drinking beer and pretending to fix trucks. When he got out, he went back to delivering mail and writing songs. He wrote Sam Stone about a returning Vietnam vet with PTSD and a morphine habit, and Donald and Lydia about a couple who made love from 10 miles away. And Hello In There, told from the point of view of a retired man feeling the loneliness of old age and yearning for connection. In 1970, film critic Roger Ebert discovered Prine one night when he was out carousing at the Fifth Peg in Chicago and Prine was singing open mics. Ebert wrote a review. Singing Mailman delivers a powerful message in a few words. He appears on stage with such modesty he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight. He sings rather quietly, and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow, but after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to his lyrics. And then he has you. She was a level-headed dancer on the road to alcohol and I was just a soldier on the way to Montreal well she pressed her chest against me about the time the jib box broke yeah she gave me a peck on the back of the neck and these are the words she spoke blow up your TV throw away your paper go to the country build you a home Plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try and find Jesus on your own. Prine seemed to find a lot of humor in describing people he met and situations he encountered from everyday life. Spanish Pipe Dream was such a song. Like many of Prine's songs, it makes you smile in recognition. Prine was observant about those characters around us that are goofy but make life richer. Safety Joe was about a guy who takes no risks and thereby misses a lot of the important things in life. Well, he never got too lonely. And he never got too sad. But he never got too happy. And that's what's just too bad. He never reached much further than his lonely arms would go. He wore a seatbelt around his heart, and they called him Safety Joe. Safety Joe. Safety Joe. Safety Joe. Safety Joe. 
What do you say, what do you know If you don't loosen up the buckle On your heart and start to chuckle You're gonna die of boredom, safety Joe Prine was also a songwriter's songwriter, and lots of them idolized him. Chris Christopherson was his second discoverer in that he connected Prine with a lot of other music legends. They wrote Jesus Was a Capricorn together. Bob Dylan called John Prine one of his favorites, saying Prine's stuff is pure Proustian existentialism. Midwestern mind trips to the nth degree. He writes beautiful songs. Johnny Cash called Prine one of his big four, and Bruce Springsteen noted... John and I were the new Dylans together in the early 70s. He was never anything but the loveliest guy in the world. He wrote music of towering compassion with an almost unheard of precision and creativity when it came to observing the fine details of ordinary lives. Bonnie Raitt and Prine toured a lot together, playing the college circuit. I never ceased to be awestruck watching him perform. His mix of pathos and humor and sardonic wit and his unique eye on the way people were. I was just knocked out. He really was the same person on stage as he was off stage. We were like young kids riding around on our bikes before our parents call you in after dinner to go to bed. The childlike excitement and the thrill of being with each other and the playfulness is what I remember the most. One of the things I liked most about Prine was his quirkiness in choosing what he would write about. Although I had heard and enjoyed a lot of Prine's tunes, I first began paying more attention to him when he put out Jesus, The Missing Years in the early 90s. Wine was flowing, so were beers. So Jesus found his missing years. He went to a dance and said, this don't move me. He hacked up his pants and he went to a movie. On his 13th birthday, he saw a rebel without a cause. He went straight on home and invented Santa Claus, who gave him a gift, he responded in kind. He gave the gift of love and went out of his mind. I had been an altar boy in my Lutheran church growing up, and I often wondered what Jesus was up to between his 12th birthday and when he began his ministry about 18 years or so later. Apparently, John Prine had been wondering similar thoughts. I could imagine Prine with the mind of a daydreamy altar boy. Quirky John Prine. Prine wrote a fair amount about moving on upstairs to the afterlife. He wrote, Please don't bury me way back in 1973 about how to deal with his remains after he passes on and when I get to heaven in 2018, after two bouts of cancer had him thinking more clearly about the afterlife. But I think my favorite might be, Your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. It's partly a commentary about Vietnam, but it also has one eye on heaven. Well, I got my windshield so filled with flags I couldn't see. So I ran the car upside a curb right into a tree. Goodbye, John Prine. Get busy up there writing songs. Jesus has a lot more missing years that need music and lyrics. Standing in the pearly gate said, But your flag cow won't get you into heaven anymore. We're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now Jesus don't like killing no matter what the reason. 
for And your flag cow won't get you into heaven anymore Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. And now our interview with Communal Founders, Organic Farmers, and stars of the BBC reality show Castaways, Peter and Sheila Jowers. Hello, I'm here with Peter and Sheila Jowers. We're sitting on a farm, a small farm outside of Rue Peru, an Aveyron department in southern France. I've known Peter and Sheila since, uh, I think, around Christmas 1975, when uh, we took a ride together in Peter's Morris Minor down to the Pelvin Rose Pub across from Mersey Island. And so that's the first time we met. And I met them through Peter's brother, Steve Jowers, who's I had met at Berkeley. We have known each other for uh, almost 45 years now. Peter and Sheila are two of my dearest friends. They have been, in a lot of ways, I had meant this interview to be sort of about building of communes, but as we've thought about it, it's a little bit more about how you use land in a beneficial way, and I think that's a lot of what you guys have done over time. Please tell us a little about your families and where you came from. Let's go ahead, Peter. Well, I came up from this place called Mersey Island, which you have to get across on a road. It's called the Stroot. We lived on the eastern end of the island, and my grandparents had bought my father and his brother a farm. And my father had been in the war. He was a bit of a recluse, mm-hmm. obsessed with nature. And he'd, he'd come back and he'd been to Oxford, and he was a school teacher in Norwich, where I was born, which is in East Anglia. We're all very East Anglian, the family. And his whole shtick was he was going to give up teaching and grow flower seeds for uh, flower companies because the Mersey Island and that area is very dry. It's the driest part of England, 16 inches of rain. So it had already a developed flower seed growing industry. So I, on the farm we had a sort of small holding, part of the farm, probably three to four acres. We grew all our own veg. My father was a beekeeper. He won the National Light Honey Championship three years in a row. I didn't know that. That's oh, great. Yeah, gold, yeah. Uh, silver medals. I was spending my life humping beehives around. We had an orchard and we worked hard. He was a very, very hard worker all his life. And I, I was you know, nose to the grindstone, little boy, you know, child slave labor didn't seem like my dad having a great time yeah i remember uh, visiting your parents you're always put to work the very next morning Absolutely. you arrive in the evening the next morning you're out to well work. i came so. back from the states i've been away for a year and he says right the hose ready yeah and sheila you grew up in sussex yeah, I had come from a very different background. My mother had been a refugee from Germany, met my dad, English, very, very Englishman, in Egypt, and she'd come from a big family in Germany that all dispersed. And so when she came to England, she loved the idea of having a tight little nuclear family all together. You're an artist. You have been an artist for years. Were you, as a little girl, were you drawing all the time? Yeah. Or? We first lived, after I was born in London, we lived in Newcastle. And my father worked for the Ministry of Housing. So okay. I used to watch him carry rolls of paper on his bike to work and he would come home and I'd ask him and so I'm about three years old four no older than four and I'd ask to see what were in his rolls of paper and there would be um, plans for houses and new towns so at the age of three and a half I designed my first new town Norwood and and, um, 
I actually discovered it when my mother died recently. She had left the, the new town that I designed with a Ministry of Housing stamp, print stamp. stamp on it. Oh, that's so great. That's my first proud um, piece of artwork. We lived Life. on the edge of the country, and I used to escape into fields, and we would build and camps, wood, and there, there were woods, and I loved, with friends, damming streams and flooding the nearby field and even a local house. Mm-hmm. And so today, well, you'll hear later, we, we do quite a lot of digging streams and diverging rivers, oh, no, streams. Streams, yeah, sure. Collecting yeah. water and so on. All stuff that has to do with being part of the land. And I think that's one of the things that I learned a lot from visiting your parents right, right. was how important the land was mm-hmm. in the whole thing. Apropos that, we're sort of establishing that you guys were both in touch with nature as kids and in, involved in gardens and so Yeah, we grew our own, my dad grew our own food. We had, we had chickens. I had a flock of geese when I was about 8.30 odd geese I used to look after. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, feed before I went to school and stuff. You know? Right, yeah. And that was the first place I ever plucked a chicken. Really? Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. at your dad's <laughs> farm and you're, uh, actually he told me that Peter was the champion chicken plucker of the yeah, family. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know why? Because he'd pull a fast one. We had a deal on the Saturday when I was a teenager. I could go out and chase girls and stuff into town uh-huh. on the bus. If I, I could catch a half past one bus, it about one o'clock. He'd say, right, we need two chickens plucked for Sunday lunch. <laughs> so I had to take two chickens in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the, Super fast. Yeah, the origins of speedy chicken plucking. So um, as I recall, you guys met in London as students. And yeah. I think, Sheila, you were an art student? Yeah, uh, at the Slate. At it's the Slate? It's the same college that Peter was. Yeah, University the, the college. Slate, the Slate is like... Probably the most famous art school in London. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. ridiculous who's been there. Mm-hmm. You only, they only take about 14 students a year, so, I mean, you've got to be super talented. Uh, I don't there. think so. Well, well you, you know, you have. Yeah, yeah. And all sorts of famous people, you know, so from, the, from the Victorian times onwards have been there. Mm-hmm. It's a real high prestigious school. Yeah. We were, I was at University College. Were you studying politics? or I did economics and international relations to start with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I soon got disillusioned with economics. I'd done it at A-level, mm-hmm. you know, before you go to school, high school, American. Yeah. And you just seem to be repeating the same old nonsense. Well, they don't call it the dismal science. Oh, that's very, it's yeah, dismally yeah. boring. <laughs> <laughs> so you were studying at University College, and, and, you were studying yeah. economics, international, and Sheila was doing art at Slade. Yeah, she came a year later than me, and I walked, one day I walked in, we had a thing called a refectory, and it had big glass windows, and then suddenly there was this shining light over there with a draft of light on her blonde hair, and I was like, in France they call it a coup de foudre. I was just fell in love instantly. That's a a bloody lightning it was. That's a gobsmacking moment. I want to take that in. That's very nice. And then I spent about four years trying to tie down. (laughs) (laughs) From what I understand, you guys used to tell me that you often there was a lot of student groups all, you know, having you know, chatting together and so forth. So you met as kind of a lot of ways as part of a group of people, right? Well, well, as you do as students. You're right. I yeah. used to walk through the cloisters in UC, which were quite a, a remarkable area with long seats and people sitting in clusters. Mm-hmm. And Peter was always there with his girlfriend, surrounded by the people, talking about really fascinating things. And I used to sit in on them and listen. Mm-hmm. And Peter always had something fascinating to talk about. He could make anything seem interesting. So... Apropos your meeting there in, at London, you were friends and you had friends of friends and so forth. And uh, how long before you actually got together then? 
Well, was it when you went to Princeton no, and we started yeah. writing to each other? Yeah, that's right. It was so good having had, long correspondence. We both seemed to have interfering boyfriends and girlfriends. Yeah, right. I, maybe I didn't have a girlfriend, she'd have a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I'd have a girlfriend, she wouldn't have a boyfriend, so we'd never get it together. And she used to come and visit. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that year, this is my memory, after lots of ups and downs and trials and tribulations, we made a pact that I would go back to Princeton and finish a year off and she would, she'd stay in London and do what she was doing and then we'd get to see whether we'd get together when we got back. And we got back together. The yeah, and, and writing was a very important yeah, part letters. of our she friendship. Might, she, she has always done brilliant letters, all drawings and stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. And Peter's yeah. letters were so fascinating that I um, was cycling down the Camden High Street, not looking but reading the letter, and I crashed. <laughs> into the Camden Council truck and they had to pick me and my bike unconscious oh. off the street and chuck me in the back of the van and they took me to UCH where I recovered oh, quickly. Fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so the one of Peter's letters caused untold yeah. misery yeah. in the end. So yeah. now, They left a mark, a deep impression. Then we went, she had a good, I got a to job, job in a school. Art down in the West Country. So this is the origins of the West yeah. Country thing. Yes. Yeah. So just for uh, American and other listeners, the West Country is a, is a lovely part of England and it also includes Glastonbury on the, on the sea is British. Bristol, yeah. Gloucester's out there. There's a lot of and Wales. Beyond. Wales is nearby. Yeah. Yeah. The forest and mountains. Of Dean kind of. Yeah, you get into mountains. Sort of yeah, we sort of wanted to go where it was more wild. So yeah. Sheila got a job as an art teacher first. Yes. Yeah. And then you got a job soon thereafter at Bristol Poly. That's right. As a as a professor. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah. we, we don't call them that. We were called lecturers because professor is quite high status. I was never one of them. Okay. So okay. Oh, well, well, I thought you, of you, you as were as good as a professor, Peter. Yeah, I was willing to give it to you. <laughs> Meanwhile, we started looking for houses. We're, I've got an income now. We're right, income, yeah. You know, and I yeah, to... finally a hippie's dream. I've got yeah. an income now. <laughs> Same aspirations, but now yeah, an yeah. income, right. So huh? we, what we're going to do, well, we need to do, we need to find some land, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and a place to live. Where are we going to go? So we did a sort of circle around outside of, um, uh, of Bristol, mm-hmm. so, you know, radiating out, still repairing Morris Miners. Mm-hmm. Morris Meyer, of course, is the English Volkswagen. Yes, I never know why they've never made a retro one of them. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, in the end, we were going to buy a cottage in the Forest of Dean, which is a very wooded area. Also, a classic kind of almost hobbity kind of part of England Welsh border, right? Yeah, very and it was the last Labour seat. In, it, um, yeah, in and it was an old coal mining area. It was more like Wales than England, uh, okay. but it was very cut off by two rivers and very in, it's self-sufficient and it's got its own dialect and so everybody's got a weird view. It's supposed to be inbred. And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, and there were so fantasies forth. about, because it was between the Y and the Seven, that one could mm-hmm. actually separate it and send it off yeah, so as yeah, independent. It's not a very distinct area. And meanwhile, I'd met, I just started at the university. Mm-hmm. And we went to a place called Monmouth, and I was looking in the estate agents for places, and I saw this Wyerston Lees, this massive estate, right? £80,000. At the time, we could afford £10,000. But this was a track cottage, greenhouses, 80 acres, fishing rights, massive massive mansion, stables, God knows what. So I went back to university with people I didn't really know. You know, I I was in this... Department of Politics by then. Right, right. So you're a brand new lecturer. Yeah, in my first year, sort of. And she had just, no, you hadn't had a baby by then. We were, she was teaching in Bristol by then. And we decided, I said, I went back to these people, I said, Barney, look, this place is phenomenal. 
if you only need about four or five people, we could buy and sell bits off. And so a few colleagues went out to Bomber to look at the place. And a few people got excited. And then just as, you know, we locked into about two or three were in, really interested, which is Clive, mm-hmm. who we ended up with Adset. Which was Clive was a, po- a political science lecturer yeah. also at Bristol, and he was married to a woman, he is married to a woman. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and mm-hmm. Felix, who's mm-hmm. a German from Swabia. Yeah, and Felix was a German lecturer yeah. at Bristol yeah. Poly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he spoke immaculate English and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. So the three of us locked together. We were going to find a place. Wyastonese, meanwhile, had been sold, this place by the Y. Right, the original so, interest. Yeah. So we decided to uh, go looking for places in a radius around Bristol. And we, if we came to this place called Adset Court, which you know well, which was, we couldn't afford it. How much was it on the market at the time? At the time, it was on the market at about 60,000, We could all afford about, I could afford 10,500, they could afford about twelve. They already mm-hmm. had houses. Give you some perspective here on Adset. Adset was originally, you'll talk about the the building, but it was a a large house with some surrounding outbuildings, which were stables and the like. And then there was about five acres, which was quite beautiful. Uh, It was eventually National Trust Garden, right? uh, It's like a park. National Gardens. And then there was a surrounding ten acres that was uh, stuff that you could... uh, Rent fields, Lovely, lovely buttercup meadows. And and you can rent that out or... uh, to yeah, get over the local farmer. We used to get sheep in in the, in the winter to graze it off. Mm-hmm. And then, so that gives you an idea. And there was, at the time, occasional large estates that were maybe old aristocrats that had to sell them off right. and so forth. Right. So this is what puts something like this on the market, perhaps. Right. Right. Anyway, That's please right. continue. So the bloke who'd owned it was a, had we'd done, it run an illegal betting in Gloucester before it became... Legalized. He would, do, mm-hmm. he would do sort of numbers running, if you know what I mean. Oh, yes, okay. He'd made a fortune. Uh-huh. He'd put in a massive swimming pool, tennis courts. Right. Dodgy he couldn't league. swim, though. No. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so there's this place, all in Macket with these huge flower borders. Herbaceous all borders. All done up by sophisticated you know, planters and stuff. Very, very beautiful. Very beautiful. Yeah. And big old trees. and Quite just, formal as well. Yeah. And the house sort of lent itself to chopping up. Right. You know, it had a Vic, had a sort of late Georgian, early Victorian front. Yes. Yeah. De- describe describe the big house a little bit. Uh, well, the middle, the core of it had been had been built in um, Tudor it, it, times. Uh, no, Stuart, no? wasn't it? Six, okay. uh, uh, 1640s. It was a fireplace in there, 1647 mm-hmm. or something right. like that. So that's the core. That's the core. Is, yeah. Okay. And then made some, they'd obviously made some money in the in the Napoleonic Wars, I think. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the ground, it was old marsh land, which was a bit drained, and it became very fertile land, and they must have mm-hmm. made a fortune, because as you know, wheat prices went rocketing up during the Napoleonic War. Okay. And yeah. they built this front on, which is very, very stately, beautiful. Yeah, but, uh, beautiful. that part is That's called the, Georgian, right? Georgian, or? late Georgian, early okay. Victorian, okay. Yeah, Georgian. Mm-hmm. It was very much a Georgian style, and the back was a sort of... A back bit was the servants' quarters that had been built a bit and later, that was in the Victorian time. Okay. And we had all the sort of pulleys and, you know, things inside. Dumb waiters. And dumb waiters and mm-hmm. stuff to take stuff up to different floors and stuff. Mm-hmm. Behind the green beige door and all that stuff mm-hmm. was in one part of it. So did you see this then as the potential to be divided up? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then you're looking, you were with, partnered with Clive and Anna and Felix and Isabel. That's right. And uh, three of us. Three, three looking at this... Big house in the surrounding. Yeah, but we could buy it the first time. I I think it's quite significant that these were these people were colleagues Mm -hmm. and. 
people we'd made friends with only briefly, yeah. so they we weren't like people we'd like chosen you. to live with. Right, and no, so you didn't was, really know what no, you were getting into. No, no. no. Yeah. And you, not like you and, say, Scudder and that, it was mm-hmm. like friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. We right. were just acquaintances. Yeah. Right. Which we can mull over the, the implications of that later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get, we get a message. He's willing to drop his price. So we got it for 50000 We'd heard of another commune over in the Cotswolds, Okay. Another big old place with loads of barns and stuff. And we'd heard of this place, so we thought, well, we'll go and see what, what sort of tips they can give us. I'd actually done some reading on, on mm-hmm. communal living in, the, in America in the mm-hmm. 19th century mm-hmm. at the time. They Bussage, said, it was called. Bussage, yeah. No, that was one we went to look at. I forget the name of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still exists, that place. And they said, you're going to have, you know, the big, the, you need some rules. Mm-hmm. You need to sort of have some structure. Structure. Because mm-hmm. we didn't know each other, we weren't friends. So we had a, right. a formal, and they said, we have a rule that, you know, one of the big problems is people coming to stay who are friends of, of friends and they stay forever and. You can't get them you out. You can't, can't get rid of them. So you need, to have a, you need to have a get rid of rule. <laughs> the purge rule. Yeah, so and the deal we came up with was that if, if, if anybody in the, of the others objected, uh, somebody would have to leave after three weeks. Okay. Well, this became a double-edged sword later on. I see. It was used against you sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. a difficult okay. one. But, uh, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, they were, considering the number of people we had, musicians, yeah. more of that later, they were right. very generous. So yeah, we, okay. we did push it. Maybe you could describe the, how yes. you separated yeah. out. So you've got this steward to Georgian mansion, basically, yeah. and you've got these side buildings, which yeah. are you're calling stables. Right. Yes. So how did that get divided up? Well, we had, a, we had a... St- the, the, there was the three bits that I mentioned earlier, and mm-hmm. then we had this outbuilders, which were a gardener's cottage and stables running together. Mm-hmm. But that was very derelict. And that faced south, and, I, and it was nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, was, and it was a bit isolated and a bit from isolated, the rest. And I knew that I'd like to be more isolated than the others. And also, it was going for less because it needed a lot of work. Was it. All it was was four walls and a roof. I mean, I had to and one it. tap. And one tap. Mm-hmm. It right. was just yeah. it was knackered. I had to put everything so right from the beginning. Then. Mm-hmm. And then the the, uh, the Georgian end was very elegant with marble fireplaces, the high ceilings, and the beautiful bit out and from when the I windows. And the lovely views of that in the main. Yeah, the beautiful lawns yeah, looking yeah, out yeah, yeah, and everything. And yeah. then there was the Tudor middle bit, which was Stuart, for Tudor, us Tudor, Stuart. Yeah. Which was, dark to my eyes, blue. very dark because it was facing north, mm-hmm. and but it, but it was had a lot of character. There of were character. panels, panelled walls, and big open fireplaces, and interesting bedrooms with interesting stucco features and um, yeah, um, wooden beams and. Um, yeah, it was re- really a very characterful area, but mm. too dark for us. So, what was the fourth bit there? That was, that was the Victorian service. So there we were, the four of us, and mm. we had a we was we lived communally in the main. Oh, because we never know it. Meanwhile, she decides we need a baby. Oh yeah. Well, we needed. Sheila's perspective. Her sister-in-law on this. got pregnant, man, and the next thing I got to have a baby gone. Oh, right, saying, yeah. We should finish the building. <laughs> that is a bit of an exaggeration. I, I'm, I think I became pregnant yeah. long before we knew about Adset. Yeah. But we, mm. the first thing we needed was a kitchen, and none of us had a kitchen except in this Main Victorian house. area. Okay, so at this point, so, there was not separate kitchens. No, yeah, okay, and no. we, for we about six months, we yeah. shared a kitchen. Mm. And I think we learned a lot. 
lot through sharing and working together in a kitchen. Yeah. Did you did you feel like you fused relationships, or do you feel like we you were solidified all quite friends at the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all talked together. Yeah, we together were all very so. You know, you're young, you're social, and yeah, we were excited sure. about the we're whole very prospect. Excited, and we were. Mm -hmm. Trying to divvy up the jobs and all that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if, you know, I was going to do the gardening, and Felix was going to do the pool and the, and the lawns, and, and Clive was going to sort out the tennis court, and, mm -hmm. yeah, and so on and so forth. These were what you know. So we were in separate areas of competence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were going to have to, we well, we did have chickens, and we'd provide all the others right. with eggs. And, we, and, and yeah, in that period, we kept all sorts of things: turkeys, and we often had, we often had pigs. Uh-huh, yeah, right, yeah. sure. You yeah. had lots of fun on that. Front. Well, how did you then decide who got, like, the steward, the tutor, etc.? Well, that was... I don't know. I, just, I know. She, she well, I, I think I know. Mm. We decided there were these four areas, four couples, and... Um, we, well, no, the bus, three, because we just did it up yeah, before Yeah, I know, but we, had, we numbered the places, one, two, three, four, okay. and then we all would write which one we wanted. Well, we knew we wanted the south-facing, fairly derelict, that needs lots of work, quiet place. You were willing to put into work to build this place. Yeah, we uh, needed to mm -hmm. and we wanted to. We wanted mm -hmm. to make it our own. Whereas Felix and Isabel, um, an elegant, like elegant, elegant place which was pretty well complete in itself. They that Felix and Isabel would definitely want that area. Anna and Clive weren't obsessed with light, and they liked the character so we knew, and the we history. Knew, almost we almost fun. knew already. And then when we wrote the numbers down, the only one that was left untaken was the Victorian bit, and we each had the bit we liked. So and it worked out brilliantly. Did you have a political ideology or anything no. with the thing, or it, it was more of a partnership? It was, was a partnership, yeah. a mutually beneficial partnership. So that we could all live in gorgeous, lovely surroundings, stuff we could never achieve on our own. Um, and also, because we weren't intimately friendly and hadn't known each other for years, if we wanted to just be private with her in our own houses, there was no one would think we'd not yeah, talk. We had one. sort of rules, some sort of mostly informal ones that developed that you don't go, you never enter anybody's house unless you knock. Mm hmm. You don't make a lot of noise outside their house after about seven or eight, depending on the time of the year. You don't mm -hmm. go and play, you know. Basically, sort of respect. But yeah. the deal was, you can go anywhere outside. Mm -hmm. There's no private land. It was all, mm -hmm. land was not parceled up. Mm -hmm. None of it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, yeah, and also you bring up the thing uh, of, and this this is, I think, partly what powered our communal uh, part in Northern California. You teamed up because you couldn't get things on your own. Yes. yes. So you joined forces, yes. and in, in in numbers, there's some strength. Yes. And in a lot of ways, both Britain and the United States, especially then, those uh, things are kind of frowned on by yes. the society, especially yeah. by the legal and business system. Absolutely, and the locals. We were a, we were a hippie commune with yeah. Swedish au pair girls having yeah, random Anna. sex in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. We subsequently heard. Yeah, we? right. Apparently, yes. we were, apparently we were having orgies all the time, and Anna, <laughs> Anna was the Swedish. She had long, she long had blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, she had long blonde hair. And, yeah, and right. we were so uncouth that we didn't know what a swimming pool was, so we'd filled it all with junk. <laughs> yeah. This is how the story went. Yeah, so we decided to have our first open day when all the public was invited. That's how we got people. involved with the oh, National Garden Scheme. Okay, good. So uh, then lead into that. Tell us about how you got here. The community involved and then ended up as a National Garden Trust. And yeah, all well, that. Uh, well, Head in that direction. Uh, um, the, Anna and Clive were very, very... He's a, he, he and I are very politically the same. Well, he's much more of an old-school Marxist lefty than I am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was... 
you know, I was always much more green and went green very quickly. I became, you know, intricately involved with the, with the garden. And that, I should add here, too, that Adset, Peter and Sheila's doing a lot of it, had a rather large vegetable garden, including greenhouses that were yeah. already in place, yeah, yeah. the old-fashioned glass greenhouses. Yeah, beautiful, they were. And they used to raise seedlings in there and then take them out. And just beyond this formally manicured flower garden part of things was this giant vegetable garden. Yeah. We carved it. We, I, I was obsessed with going around food. You know, it's very much John Seymour. Right. You know, all that stuff. John Seymour is a great back to the lander from Britain circa yeah, the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, quite influential. Very much so. Good yeah. food is inconceivable <laughs> without onions. I love John Seymour. <laughs> Go ahead, and Sheila. Peter was always keen, like like with his father, to grow things on a grand scale. So it was he was well, he go was happy to families. grow yes. enough for everyone. But increasingly, nobody seemed very interested, you know, in the actual food that we were producing. It didn't matter. So, but the the gardens were very, you know, they're called in England. They're called formal herbaceous gardens. They come from a style that was pioneered by a woman called Gertrude Gertrude Jekyll or Jekyll. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she's incredibly famous. She's even in museums, her work and stuff, her designs in museums in Paris. And it's a particular style of gardening that was developed in the late Victorian period. And this garden dated from then. It had long avenues, four long avenues uh-huh. with borders down them. And they were big, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Clive and Fitz always cut the hedges, didn't they? That was one yeah. of their jobs. I, mm-hmm. always did the, I did all the digging, weeding, planting... This is a yeah. substantial amount of digging, weeding. Yeah. These about, high well, hedges in the past <laughs> have been used so you could hide the workers behind the scenes while you lay in comfort by the pool. And you, and <laughs> Which you didn't feel is to... increasingly in now, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was enormous amounts of work. Yeah. And, I, and meanwhile, we're having babies, we're learning the job, and we're also, we're also building the house, me and Sheila. Right. And this was the, the physical construction or reconstruction of the house of the stables and this garden. It was huge. Each time I would come, I'd be put to work, and I just assumed <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I, I liked it, and we, we put down flooring, we yeah, yeah, yeah. moved stuff around, work in the garden. Concrete. Yeah, piping. it was part of the... It was an ongoing continuation of what your father and mama did yeah, when yeah, I visited yeah, there, yeah. and what your brother did when I visited Yeah, him. that's right. He did the one up, didn't he? And yeah. he'd show up with me, and we'd yeah. both go to work. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. Meanwhile, having very small, three small all children, all under the age of four. And they started three. being born in 1976 or yeah, so? Yeah, that's when Mahala was mm-hmm. born. It was wonderful for me because there were always, um, the, everyone was young in their 30s at that time. And there was always someone there who, if I, if it, things got too much, I could go and hand a baby over for 10 minutes. Or if I needed to go shopping or whatever, there was always somebody else there to help share work. Having a big garden meant that if the children got irritable at all, I would just go out and we'd play in the garden or go pick vegetables. There was always loads to do. And then later on, it was a really safe area for children just to run free. And you had three wonderful girls, Mahala, born 76, Jesse born 78. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And then uh, Hen born 80. So they are three very spirited types, completely different from each other. Yes. And all raised on this land where they had 
access to the West Country, to the Forest of Dean, yeah. and also to the vegetable garden. And the yeah. swimming pool, of course, for kids. Right. Yeah, sure, which yeah. was dangerous as well. We nearly lost a few. You know. Yeah, we, we had to um, keep an eye on them, or they kept an eye on each other. There, was mm -hmm. met, there were many occasions when Mahala would sit on one of them and scream until one of us would come and rescue the <laughs> baby from another, crawling into the pool. Big... But do you think, though, that growing... I, this is part of my theory of watching them grow up on the land over time. I'd visit every couple, couple three years, and sometimes a number of times within a year. I'd see them grow up on the land, and they seemed fairly... It was part of their uh, upbringing. It's kind of, it takes a village, and in some ways it takes a homestead. They learned things a lot of yeah, city yeah. kids yeah. or and, yeah, suburban yeah. kids. And later on, we learned that each of them had a whole private life within this extended garden into the fields that I had no and idea the about. And the children. Yeah, and, and they yeah. would go on adventures under into the under living and having camps under the bridge by the river, all mm. sorts of things that and I would have the, at the time thought were dangerous. Across. One girl, uh, Mahala, became kind of a linguist and ended up being in Egypt. She spoke uh, fluent Arabic. Yeah met an Egyptian man and married him and right. to come back, she's now a social worker in Gloucester, yeah, right? right? And then uh, Jesse became an artist and had, was obsessed with fairies growing up <laughs> and sort of was like a large fairy herself, became an artist and now she's married to a Sicilian and they're on a communal homestead or on a homestead yeah. in Sicily uh, raising two kids. And then Henny became a lawyer and kind of an entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, she married a, a socially responsible banker <laughs> for sure. nice guy yeah Wonderful a very great guy. guy and also they live in london and sort of business powerhouses yeah, yeah. and it, this all came from these growing up on this being responsible on yeah, this right. piece yeah. of land yeah, yeah. so well, it's also um interesting that after they left the local schools primary schools it was partly our decision, but with them, that they go to a school in Gloucester. So they learn very early on from 11 to catch buses into town mm -hmm. and to their schools. So they had an idea of what town like, city life was like, as well mm -hmm. as the country. And they learned from their experience of being independent and catching public transport. Yeah, we never, that did, was we never did much running around after them. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't go... I'd take them swimming and various things, ballet and stuff, but yeah, we, we weren't one of these hovercraft... Well, they call them helicopter Helicopter parents. Parent, we right. weren't at all like that. Yeah. Then someone called Doug turns up one evening in the middle of winter with Steve and some Feb, musty February night, and we go up to the pub, and he produces a bloody spliff. <laughs> is this, is so this I've been a, living a, for about seven years. Is this allowed? Really? Yeah, I decided okay. I'm gonna have kids. Like, it's time to get me act together. You know, time to sort things. Out. He corrupted me again. <laughs> a second hippiedom occurred there. It certainly so. did. <laughs> yeah. Ap apropos the second hippiedom, you also, and this was, I think, great. Yeah. And I don't know that this has anything to do with communal living or partnership. Oh, no, it think, it does, yeah. But I think about Woman. Yeah. You know, like you guys became involved with the world of music and dance which is probably bigger in Europe, but it's still recognized in North America as well. Do you want to say a bit about it? Yeah, yeah. please talk about a little bit about WOMAD and the yeah. kind of influence well, that you've had on your kids and so forth. We'd already, early 80s, I'd started going down to my local pub for a Friday night and I'd begin to, I got started getting very integrated into the local community. Yeah. And I've always been interested in live music. So we started putting on bits of live music in, a, in little village halls, mm -hmm. just as private promoters, mm -hmm. and a really good nights. So, so we got, I then got, then we got involved in C and D. 
campaign against Newton Oh yes, okay, right. E. P. Thompson, a you know, famous historian, came mm-hmm. and gave a talk in I think it must have been the late seventies, early eighties, and it was when the cruise missiles were going to be put in. Right, Britain. sure. Yeah, and uh, Reagan was putting, threatening with intermediate uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, right. Western Europe pointed at the Soviet Union. The Germans were freaking out because they were yes. going to be in the firing line. Well, that's where the sort of peace movement, which turned into the subsequent Green movement, came yes. from. So I went back, fired up from this this talk I'd heard in Bristol. Um, to set up a branch of C&D in the Forest of Dean. So so we started promoting, and then back in Mersey, where I came from, this organisation, World of Music and Drama, mm-hmm. which had been funded by Peter Gabriel. Right. For, the first one was in Bristol in 1981. There's flown musicians from all over the world. Um, it was, you know, the idea was world music and world dance, whatever world music was. Mm-hmm. There's big debates as to what it is. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a financial disaster. So he'd had to reform and go on tour with Genesis. You know, he had a couple of gigs where it paid off the, the 100,000 debt or whatever it was. But he always had the final say-so on, 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 on certain aspects of work. But he was very hands-off and didn't actually get involved at all in the day-to-day uh, business. Mm-hmm. But what he did do is, when, for example, we had the drummers of Burundi come, mm-hmm. which we toured around Britain and stuff. Yeah. On Christmas, me and John, about 40 of them, huge blows into a massive drum. Mm-hmm. We, we went down, the first morning of recording, we went down to Woburn Abbey, which is a big Duke of Bath, it's a big old stately home, and, it, and they have this oranger, and the idea was the oranger would have sort of tropical plants, and it's a lunatic video guy, mm-hmm. and they shone these huge bright lights on this misty morning through this, this glass orangery, and the drummers of Burundi were there, and these huge... Did mean, you know their music? No. Oh, no. I mean, it's just... Mm-hmm. It's just this wall of... No, I've never heard anything like it. When I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was looking after. Suddenly, they, and all the whole glass was rattling mm-hmm. <laughs> and shaking and, and boof. Anyway, Peter Gabriel would have them in his studio at night. Mm-hmm. I remember sort of snoozing on the floor. Peter Gabriel would be laying down their tracks with them or any of the other musicians. Mm-hmm. And then he'd use them to sing over and do his thing. So part of the music for the... What's the one about Christ he did? Uh, he did the soundtrack to some film about Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last, it was Last Temptation? Last Temptation mm-hmm. of Christ. Okay. Uh-huh. The, Gabriel did the soundtrack for that. Mm-hmm. And that was part of that music was recorded with mm-hmm. the drummers of Burundi and all But there was other uh, musicians. You had people from <coughs> Zambia. Yeah, well, from... Pakistan. Yeah, we went. We went to this festival in in Mersey. Mm-hmm. It was, there was an international camp in Mersey. It was a campsite that had been founded after the war to foster international friendship among youth. So and um, amazing boom. Chinese musician, you know, Yue. Go Yue. Go Yue. The Yue brothers, and, they were. And it was their first Jimmy, time in Jimmy the West. Cliff. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, more of which later, mm-hmm. and all sorts of reggae bands and stuff from Bristol and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so I was so blown away with it because I'd got disillusioned. I was very fond of you know in the sixties, mm-hmm. music was important, wasn't it? Politically mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. It all turned into sort of Bowie and glam rock and stuff, which wasn't my shtick. Mm-hmm. And I got a bit sort of they got quite decadent, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it wasn't really where my head was at. So I thought oh, I saw that. So I listened to a lot of folk music and classical music in the early. 70s. And then this was like the weird awakening of my interest in music and politics. 
because mm-hmm. it was really Very about apartheid, so. anti-racism, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. And you had all these musicians come through AdSet Court. Yeah. Well, I went and volunteered to work. And yes, and you became a product, like yeah. a production well, team. We, so the, the well, communal aspects were probably falling away as opposed to you guys getting involved in general yeah, culture. But the other, the other, well, we, we were still there. We mm-hmm. were all fairly, because we, you know, yeah. we, we were fairly polite to each other. We were fairly oh, yeah. rational. You know, yeah, we sure. Anna and Clive would come to some of the musical yeah, events very, in the yeah, local we village hall. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the biggest one I was involved with was um, a tour around Europe with uh, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. I don't know if you know his music, do you? Yes. It's Kuali music. And he was, you know, he's like the sort of Elvis Presley of the of the Muslim world. You know, he was just huge. And we'd have audiences of 10,000, 15,000. Yeah. And this was the summer of 1990 or 91. The wall had just come down. And we were, it was just such an amazing, difficult, exhausting, but ex- exciting thing to have done. And I really, that's what I was, and I sometimes call it my war. I grew up there mm-hmm. on the road with them. Mm-hmm. The sort of quick thinking I had to do. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just amazing. And we also did. I also went in Europe with the musicians of the Nile, mm-hmm. which are another you know Egyptian band. And then another one where we met in Roskilde, that one with Amayenge, the, the Zambian. Amayenge was a Zambian band, and uh, they. I would. You, what would you call that kind of music? I don't know. Sort of Southern African rock. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, sort of. They all had their own Folk specific rock. names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was electric. Yeah, but, electric. Oh, but yeah. lots of traditional drumming and acrobatics. And <coughs> they were yeah. street kids from uh, you know. Yeah, they had the guys jumping world. around in front of the band and being on yeah, unicycles yeah. and, and stuff. Pyramids like that. with sort of bicycles whizzing around on the top of their head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they were right, um, tumbling and all this sort yeah. of stuff. Meanwhile, the band is cracking out some furious rhythms. They were excellent. Can, yeah, can I say fun. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living in the Forest of Dean, it was pretty much all white. And yeah. out of ignorance, people, children, families were quite racist. Some families yeah. were quite racist. Mm. And so we'd have all these amazing black Colourful. kids in the garden mm-hmm. performing, doing these amazing music, but also gymnastics, leaping off the tops of their vans, doing double somersaults and then kicking a ball. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was thinking of one particular child across the road from us who was brought up to disapprove of any black person. They'd never seen them. And he would sit in fascination across the road watching them play. And we invited them in. And they came in and joined in and played football with them. And it totally changed the heads. Mm. And but, in the schools, it yeah. was amazing, yeah, the effect. Well, it it's the little things. This yeah. is what yeah, I often yeah, say. Yeah, it's just yeah. a little bit of an introduction and somebody yeah. changed. And meanwhile, yeah. we were promoting probably on it every two weeks, all mm-hmm. through the year. Mm-hmm. So she was cranking out artwork for the signs on the roads. And we were mm-hmm. you know, running these gigs and cleaning up endless halls or feeding musicians. And we got very involved with Scottish music, Irish music. And mm-hmm. we had a good tap into sort of New Orleans. So we mm-hmm. used to get a lot of American acts from New Orleans. Yeah. And, uh, and that was very, very exciting. Then we, then we worked at festivals in mm-hmm. the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd go down and work at Glastonbury. Yeah. And then we'd work at Wormhead, the, the festivals. Mm-hmm. And then other festivals. And then we decided to start our own in the late, in the mid-90s. So we had our own festivals. But I thought it was extraordinary for all this time. And so you're carrying on and, you know, you've had this sort of communal base, which is, you know, we'll call it land partnership. You've been, been open to world culture. And then about 2000, um, you end up somehow getting picked for this BBC 
reality that's all, that's show. all Sheila's fault. Yeah, well, in that case, Sheila can talk to us a little bit about the Castaway show. Yes. Because here you are with all this, you know, communal background, back to the land and so forth, and you're ending up on this BBC reality show about, what is it, 35 people? 36. On, 36 well, people on it, an island north of Scotland. Sheila, it, take it, it away. It started off because this was like 20 years later <coughs> um, at Adset, mm -hmm. and we're both going to work in the dark and coming back in the dark in February. And in The Guardian, I saw a little article um, suggesting, asking whether anyone would would like to go and live on a deserted island as an eco-experiment. As an eco-experiment. Mm -hmm. And I thought of the Iron Age experiment that had gone on filmed as a documentary in the 60s, I think around Winchester, I'm not quite sure. About what it was like to live in the Iron Age. Yes, mm -hmm. and I thought this would be a similar sort of thing. Um, and I, so I wrote a letter along with Peter. I just said, well, I, don't, I can't see if it ever worked, but you yeah, go Peter ahead Yeah, Peter was very cynical about it. So I wrote to them and said I was, we were really interested. They wrote back and said, what could you offer? And so I said about communal living and the fact festivals, that we'd we been teaching, right, yes. that we'd been teachers and that we grew our own vegetables, etc., etc., and and enjoyed cooking and, and doing practical work. And then I never really heard back again. And then in the summer, around June, when I'm putting on the final shows of the year and very, very busy, I get this Scottish voice saying to me, so, are you ready to come off to this deserted island? And I said, oh, you're joking. What, what, yeah, it sounds amazing, but I, there's no way we could really do it. We, we've got jobs, we've got children going to university, we've got a mortgage, it's just not realistic. And he said, oh, we might have ways of getting around that. Send us more information, we'll send you a questionnaire, and then we perhaps we'll get back in touch and actually meet you. So we did that, and then we went to Bristol to meet up with them, and they wanted to give us Down a... Down in Bristol is this very old Victorian hotel, they just restored, real swanky place, mm -hmm. I forget what it's called, by some international organisation, it was opposite the Bristol, near Bristol Cathedral and we go up in there and they give us psychometric tests and then they start interviewing us on camera not all right you know I was neither I didn't either care where I was going or not you know mm -hmm, just to sure. suck it and see a bit of fun you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then I come back and our children are sort of 18 19 and 20 something like that and and I tell them a bit about it and how we're thinking about it. And I'm also worried that they're not going to like the idea of us disappearing for a year. And I'm feeling perhaps I would feel guilty mm. about leaving them. And they said, no, it's really amazing. It would be so exciting. But they said, I don't think you realise what quite what this is about. And I said, yes, this is a really serious eco um, experiment and um, very committed. And you have to have, be an, an environmentalist and it would be all about nature and I could paint and Blah, blah. And um, and they said no, don't be silly. This is TV. This is I don't. We think never Big watch TV. So right, right. Yeah, we're not television people. Yeah. Watch a bit of football and comedy. That's it. <coughs> By then I'd mutated into teaching environmental philosophy and, and, and right. Stuff. You were basically a, a green politics. Yeah, yeah. and philosophy. Mm -hmm. So you know, and, mm -hmm. and so I was very very keen on just work. Well, why not you know, the, yeah. the eco side of it right right so I had more conversations with two people Chris and Paul from Lion TV which is a production and, company and I said I voiced my fears of it being like all on TV and that we're not really interested and they said oh don't worry about that not everyone has to be involved you could just come and, and do the do the gardening and offer your teaching experience and your Peter's sort of political 
angle on, on the whole thing. And we should all meet up at McKintleth. So by about the late 90s, a little bit knackered. The mm. idea of having a year off. Right. So Going to Terencey, that side was very attractive to me. So this leads us back to Terencey. And so Sheila has earlier described the uh, the meeting of the possibility and you guys were like, well, what's this television show about? Right. And so forth. So suddenly you so-called passed the audition, I guess. Well, or... we went to this McCunteth place and we realized quite quickly how sort of incredibly, well, it was obvious we were going to get picked because lots of people weren't very competent. No, or not, or needed... should we say not very practical? Yeah, they knew, mm. we knew they needed a core of practical people. Because, right. you know, they needed a rhythm section. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, and we mm. knew that we were, we were well in for that. Yeah. So... We were selected. But also, they put us to the test by dumping us in a wood, telling a whole group of us that we had to catch a chicken, kill it, and cook it for the night for for an evening meal and build a a shelter for the night. And what did they let a bunch of chickens loose or something? Yeah, and it was um, it was some it was SAS, some ex SAS, a sort of commando character. It was a famous I'd never heard of him, you know, Uh uh, who who, who (coughs) led the operation. It was pissing rain all night long. Well, we ended up with cockavans. Yeah, we had a bottle of of wine in the in the van. In the van, and we had tins, old tin cans, and I'd I'd because of having years at Adset keeping chickens, I was very good at catching a chicken and and also I knew we knew that a chicken had to be um, sort of marinated or cook cooked really for long, long and slow mm-hmm. and uh, some of the others we put we're, ours we're in a slow in, into little groups uh-huh. so we had ours with onions and carrots and stuff we'd got in the car <laughs> and the vin and in a tin and cooked slowly and the others were barbecuing a whole chicken raw. on a on a rod and so you could you couldn't They were all raw. It was terrible. (laughs) It was fun. But great fun. This allowed you with the SAS guy. This allowed you. He fell in love with Sheila, of course. So one Christmas we got on a bus. Just the deal was we were going to start on the night of the millennium. Mm-hmm. Oh right! It was yeah. all tied in with the millennium, and we got it's on the, the island. With, on, with the island, we, th- this island was way about out in the it's the in the Outer Hebrides, which is this the is Terencey, yeah. north of Scotland, it's yeah. northwest. Yeah, Harris. Mm-hmm. And there's a string of islands <coughs> called the Outer Hebrides, and there's one more little island called St Kilda's, which is fifty miles out. And then it's then it's America. Oh my! Yeah. And it's windswept. Mm. And one of the reasons was. We did have early on. They gave us a choice between going there or somewhere in the north of Skye. With Skye's more in, it's the inner Hebrides. Mm-hmm. But Skye's covered in that part was covered in trees and but insects. We know that in Scotland, anywhere trees, it's mid-central. Mm-hmm. You know, just you just get eaten alive in summer if you go anywhere near any trees or heather. Okay. That's why you go in September or mm-hmm. May. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Eaten alive. So this place, because there's a breeze and stuff. And it was, well, it's got to be one of the most gorgeous places in the world. The day that we set off across the seas to the Outer Hebrides, it was just an amazing trip, full of rainbows, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and it's just... And move, scudding clouds, and, and it, it was, was like the end of the year. And all the mounds were covered in snow, and it's like a permanent moving Rothko. Mm-hmm. All this, it was, against, up to the North Island, this whole range of mountains called Clisham. Mountains this side, open sea that side. And this moving light all day long, all the time. And it was just, it's just so gorgeous. Landed there in January. Half the people who were involved had gone down with flu. There was this massive outbreak of flu in Britain. Mm-hmm. I'd just had it in the run-up, hadn't I? Yeah. Just was getting over it. We got on this island, and it was full of builders, these local Scottish builders. 
working under arc lights in rain at night, all 24 mm. hours a day. And the howling and we, wind. We were living in this old schoolhouse, about 20 of us. Yeah. Just a little room, not two, maybe three times the size of this room. Mm. With broken windows. All, all living on sort of um, uh, metal beds and stuff. And water that deep under the floor and stuff. Mm. And then about eight days, nine days into it, there was this Force 11 gale and the whole building was shaking and half the Corrugated iron flying across, across the sky. Oh, man. It was really, pretty rough, but fun. Yeah. So we were living out there and the film company was so disorganised at that time that we were running for short of food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they had to start helicoptering or as in you know, helicopter because a lot of helicopters are used up there for the salmon farms. Mm-hmm. And lots of what they have called rigid inflatable boats, these big, powerful... Ribs. Ribs, they're called. Mm-hmm. Uh, rubber boats with two oh, massive twin engines. Yeah, sure, or, okay. You know. Mm-hmm. And so we were having to bring supplies in and stuff. So all sorts of things took place in that period. Which so were, they wanted you then, did they want you to form a communal society yeah. and they were then? Built, We'd had a long discussion and they'd come up with some plans. This is in the autumn. We'd had the two or three meetings. They were built, put, put us in some sort of barracky type building. And I'd say to them, this is ridiculous. This is an eco-experiment. This, this is just you know, horrible. This is just... Mm-hmm. This isn't what you know. Any vision you're going to give out on television of what eco livings were. Oh, we want something serious. So they brought in a a, a fancy architect from Bristol. From Bristol, mm-hmm. and we had these pods built, these circular. That's what those pictures. Circular, oh, I see. Uh-huh. But it was ludicrous. No, uh-huh. It was no more ecological flying to the moon. The uh-huh. traditional <laughs> inhabitants lived in what they call black houses. They dug into sand dunes, like uh-huh. the ones you saw mm-hmm. on and your lined them with stone. All oh, right. They have right. tilted like that. They'd have animals one end, and they'd get whale bones and old driftwood and put that and then they cut heather and put it on top and they have uh-huh. a fire at one end they lived underground so the wind would sweep them sweep across okay and that's uh-huh. what we should have been living in uh-huh. they had whole little villages with little tunnels through the dunes mm-hmm. that's what that's what it, instead they're, they're bringing up huge chunks of oak by helicopter you know shipping them up from the west country and building these oak they were very yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh-huh. and they were turf roof for insulation were you then put in sort of family units yeah well, each one of those had three units didn't it yeah, three. Three. No so right. two big rooms and then a tiny little single person. And then there was bit. the farmhouse where the doctor, who was a little bit sort of um, separate from us because he was a, well, that was a whole other story. He had the farmhouse, he demanded the farmhouse. Uh, a medical doctor. Yeah. Because yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was necessary to have a doctor. Um, oh, yeah, sure. um, I think that, so we must have all been in the pods, there were about four yeah. of them, weren't there? And yeah, then, everyone. And then so. you started doing like trying to plant gardens and well, so then forth we had with a, a television crew. Yeah, then we had right. then we had polytunnels, big poly, you know, polytunnel plastic circular metal rods, you know, mm-hmm. big polytunnels were put up. Uh, but we the had wind hole. was so powerful that it would have wiped them out. So they had to build a, a, a fence, fence a yeah. high fence to keep um, the wind and, off. And so we built the pot, we put the polytunnels up, and then we started digging, and then we, you know, started planting stuff ready for this. I ordered the seeds because we had mm-hmm. a we had a monthly delivery, and you come mm-hmm. over on a boat, and the boat would sort of rock on these on these sand uh, um, on these rocks covered, covered in seaweed, They're slippery as hell. Mm-hmm. One day they decided they were going to, because we were keeping pigs as well and chickens, mm-hmm. we had this whole scene with building a pig run and stuff, it was quite fun. And then we used to have to get the, we used to have to go down and get the, down the, down onto the rocks, get the food that came in once a month. And we were allowed five pounds per person each of our own spending money. Mm-hmm. All the rest of it was, the premise was we were all living on the lowest 
Social Security. Oh, see. Oh, and, I see. And then we'd had a little bit of capital. We'd thrown mm -hmm. into this supposed communal project. Mm -hmm. So we had, me and Sheila had, what, £40 a month to yeah. spend on and our we, own. We could mm -hmm. choose what we wanted to spend the little bit of extra money. Mm -hmm. And we chose coffee, chocolate. That's about it, really. No wine? Whiskey. Whiskey? Yeah. yeah. Coffee, yeah. chocolate and whiskey. whiskey. I can understand. It's the basics. Yeah. yeah. Basic survival. <laughs> the rest thing. of it was all communal food and mm -hmm. stuff. I'll just say something about chocolate. Uh -huh. It's been <laughs> a, a lesson for life because mm -hmm. we only had one bar, bar a, month a month or every six weeks. And we discovered if you just um, at, a, at your chocolate, you, you would think, well, where's it gone? So you would have to cut it up, cut it in half, then in quarters, then in each little tablet. And you, we made a rule that you mustn't talk, you mustn't read, you mustn't um, communicate. Well, you you must talk, just yeah, you but can you've talk, got to but you've got to focus on each little bit and notice your eating. So, I think uh, a lot of people sit watching mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness. A lot of yeah, a lot of people sit watching TV or whatever. You wouldn't you know talk, that talk, you don't even know you're doing it because you're not your mind somewhere else. Of course, else. yes, yeah. and you still appreciate and every little thing. So were the was the Beeb was BBC trying to get you to form a society what that was, a, was it? that was the pressure yeah, that yeah. Was and did you find that like ridiculous or did, were you did you play along or were you mostly surviving on your own how did you feel like in terms of community spirit and so forth Peter can I say something yes, and then yes, you, you yes, theorise yes. and stuff very soon we realised that people were living totally different lives for different reasons at the same time on the island okay. so we mm. really believed that we were there to, to work but to work was a pleasure like well, growing things Things, planting, sewing, um, making, building pathways and so on and, and helping building the um, toilets and the shower rooms and going for walks. Other people appeared to be in their rooms the whole time. What? What? Surely they ought to be working. But we actually grew to like a person who was being lazy, what appeared to be being lazy, until we discover that this person has come believing this is going to give free him up time from work to write uh, a screenplay. A screenplay. Oh. Another person was there to become a TV personality later on. We were mm -hmm. all led to believe that we were doing that. Everyone would be sharing the same beliefs, mm -hmm. and in it fact, like, everyone yeah, had totally different ideas of what they were going to get out of it. And so, in the end, were you not getting much help at all in the garden? No, it, was, it was like an ad set. A small group would do things, and everybody mm -hmm. else would do other things. Mm -hmm. But there were objective, objective things to do, mm -hmm. i.e. Just for example, by the end of the year, instead of 30 people going to help lug all the supplies up, it would be three of us. Oh, I see. Oh, I think a bit more. No. 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 The very end was three of us. Yes. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the famous one? Ben. Ben. He's, a, well, he's gone on to have a huge TV career. Right, right. He's Trump. He's rode across the Atlantic. He's uh -huh. slayed across the South Pole. And he's and a very nice person. He's a lovely bloke. Uh -huh. and he, he, he was, was he, he helpful? He, yeah, very mm -hmm. nice guy. He became the star. star and he's very good looking. Uh, he was a himbo, you know, mm -hmm. in a sort of... Mm -hmm. So he, 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 out of the, out of that particular TV thing, he was the sort of, mm -hmm. you know, the person that the TV loved and fell in love with, yeah. him, and uh, he became went on to have a big TV career. Now, did the did the BBC concentrate on you know relationships and people having yeah. disputes and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so, and that's all nonsense. We wanted to talk about the the environment and mm -hmm. all the plastics on the beaches mm -hmm. and the amazing stuff, basking sharks and mm -hmm. unbelievable wildlife and mm -hmm. amazing and, wild and, flowers. And, 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 yeah. And the weather. And mm -hmm. animals. We all had to cook once a week. 
Well, mm-hmm. I think it was at the beginning it was an eight-day cycle. Uh, groups of four, I think it was, had to had to cook a meal. So you took over at breakfast time, mm-hmm. and you cleaned up all the crud from breakfast. That was a free for all of breakfast. So it was mm-hmm. absolute bloody chaos. Mm-hmm. And then you clean all that up. And then you cook lunch, and then you cook dinner. And you, you had, the deal was you had to leave the kitchen immaculate mm-hmm. for the next day, and, for the next, and having made bread for the for, next for the breakfast day. for the next day. And it worked really well, didn't it? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And she, of course, she was such an amazing cook. They'd be beating on the doors. Nah. They'd be queuing up. No, we uh, were true, we were a good, true, but true. we were a good team. We were a good team. We worked you know? together well. But we'd done it so much at home, and we right. had good people with us, didn't we? Yeah. 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 What was her name? Mrs. Tedno. Um, Hillary. Hillary. Yeah. So, so you had that part of things was actually working pretty well over the, the course of the, the year. The sm- yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. kept going, didn't it? Yeah. Few people right. left the island for all sorts of psychological reasons and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it, but the thing was, what you realise on a thirty out of thirty six people, there are a third you really you really like, mm-hmm. a third you're indifferent to, and a third you fucking yeah, sure. Excuse my language. Yeah, please. You know. So I understood why that island had three different villages on it. <laughs> did in the end, did it? it, it uh-huh. Before it died, yeah. It did. Now, yeah. as you come to the end, uh, did the BBC want to continue it, or was it okay of its everyone's volition? It this no, they didn't want to continue. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It's interesting because you don't. It wasn't really the the BBC had commissioned it, uh-huh. but it was actually they commissioned it off an independent production company. So the, we're our dealings were with the production company. Only rarely did we see anybody from the Beep. But what happened was halfway, about two thirds of the way through the year, on a different channel, this thing called Big Brother. It was all, all young, right. Yeah, it started. became very famous. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that had a big effect on on our program because we were now yesterday's news, mm-hmm. and and they they told us that sort of seven or eight million people were watching it. It was being watched all around the world. You don't get any impression. Yeah, of that. we didn't really know about that. But you that. get these weird letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because Ben was the star, so he was getting sacks of fan mail. The doctor was the public enemy number one. He gets sacks of hate mail. Poor man. <laughs> Poor old bugger he was. He got such stick. <laughs> Quite rightly. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because and people were sort of as if they knew you. It was really weird. And, and we get... Peter, Peter started off nice guy. Then he became. Uh, they constructed this. Then he becomes the heavy guy, nasty, it was sort of controlling. The guy then... boss. Yeah, yeah, and then um, at the end, he turns out to be the nice guy after all. Yeah, they, oh, they could have this ludicrous narrative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what I was Redemption. telling, yeah, I was yeah, telling, yeah, yeah, one of these sort of bollocks. So at the end of the time, then you're you're thinking, all right, I'm we're going to go back to ad set and so forth, go back to your jobs, right? Yeah. And so at that point, did, did people out of the whole island? Did everybody ship out and go back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did we? What What about your return to tidy up oh, the island? Yeah. That oh, was yeah, very. Okay, yeah. That was really important. Yeah, because okay. because I I couldn't go back to work for another six months because mm-hmm. of the academic where the academic year yeah. fell that we yeah. finished there on the January. So I had, we had to wait till I had to wait till the following September to go back. She went back in the following April. So how was I going to have an income? So they said, well, I'll tell you what, you assemble a team and you can help take down the stuff they'd built because this, was a, this place was an archaeological site and everything had all, had all sort of teeth and bones. And pit, right, and, yeah. You know, and it, got, it had middens from the 4th century BC yeah, and yeah, all okay. this stuff, you know. So it was quite, so they had, to, once you the stuff that had been built had to be taken down. So we went up with a group of people from the Forest of Dean and took it down, for which I got paid. So I was up there for another six weeks mm. in January, February. So here you are, you come back from Terence Say, you've done this television show yeah. and this sort of, uh, you've shared your life, kind of communal aspects yeah. of your life. Come back to AdSet. 
What did it feel like to be back home? The comeback has seemed very, I felt like the change had been fantastic. Mm -hmm. really being away it. for a year yeah, from and, and, uh -huh. and we'd been at Ansett for there, I don't know, 20 odd years, 25 years by then, and it was, it was, it was calculate how long it would be before we might retire. And I was thinking, mm -hmm. well, you know, we went on doing pretty much things, but increasingly I felt we'd really like to do something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, we'd had this sort of massive freedom for a year, hadn't we? And the idea of having to sort of, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably, I'm not probably really designed for communal living. <laughs> so you're starting to think that. Did you feel similarly, Sheila? Did you feel like you were somewhat estranged? It was different because no, the kids had gone. For, it was different mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. but I, I felt it because Peter was doing. He could never not be working in the garden. And so the others would feel, well, Peter's enjoying it, so let him get on with it. And so when did you start to uh, develop a new goal or a new orientation? Well, we were going we to sell up. We were trying to sell up. Because very difficult to sell communal properties in those. It's easier now, mm -hmm. apart from communal property. So we, were, we had it on the market for about five, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. Nobody was biting. And then uh, suddenly we had an offer. We were going to go to the Welsh Borders. Mm -hmm. Which I really love over, mm -hmm. you know, over on Hereford, West Herefordshire. Over there. So Quite. this would be a move more, north in a way. Partly, no, partly, move west. Partly, west. At, west, at, at okay. a deeper level, I'd gone. From, I'd come from a very rural environment. We moved mm -hmm. to the Forest of Dean. It was very rural, but it had gradually got more and more built up, more and more mm -hmm. um, suburban, rural urban. Mm -hmm. the, the light pollution was beginning to creep out from all the towns, and the traffic. And the traffic was building up. The noise levels in the distance were bad, and mm -hmm. I thought this isn't the country. I want him. It over in West Herefordshire and all that. It was much quieter and, mm -hmm. and, and, and more rural. And I was, I was sort of, I've been a rural refugee on the run as the world closes in, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so eventually we get, we've been, meanwhile, we've been started going to France in the summer holidays, mm -hmm. camping and stuff down the Pyrenees. And, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, oh, this red wine's really nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Food's really mm -hmm. good. I like the warmth. Quite Southern nice. France is warmer. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't mind. I don't mind. Wine miles mm -hmm. shorter. So we'd always you know, idly look in estate agents' windows. But suddenly we get an offer right in the middle of the financial crisis. Bang so this in the middle of it. 2007, Right bang in the middle of it. From a young couple who are lovely and they had young children. It was a perfect place for them to move into, you know, and they liked mm -hmm. our house. And mm -hmm. we sold it for a very, very good price. And so we came to France. It was the sole objective of land, wood. So we asked for wood, wood water and land we were looking for and we ended up here. And so at this point you have found this place in southern France. This is near Rue Peru, which is in Aveyron. It's a, a rural department. This was an 18th century farmstead originally or something like that? Yeah, originally the mill was probably 17th century. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, a wood mill. Yeah, wood mill. Oh, it was. No, okay. copper mill. Mm -hmm. Copper mill, yeah. Beat that, it's for the Martinet is from Hammer. <coughs> no, right. they have these uh, hammer oh. mill. Martel. Mart yeah. yeah, they have a wooden hammer, wooden mm. thing with a, with a metal or a stone mm -hmm. thing and they yeah. beat out copper. There's copper mining right Yeah. There. And well, we first visited you about nine or so years yeah, ago. Just Peter had in, just yeah. broken his leg. The place was super rustic and <laughs> it was, it looked like a major colossal project. 
And here we are now sitting here, say nine years later or so, and it's been domesticated in an extraordinary way. And there's beautiful gardens with flowers, and there is a massive vegetable garden just across this small little <coughs> road here, which is part of the land. There's a chicken run back there, which, what do you call it? Cluckingham Palace. Cluckingham Palace, which is it's actually <laughs> brought from that's, England, yeah, right? Yeah, that's my dad's name. Yeah, it. it's, yeah. it's an old uh, it's a little chicken house, and it's a very beautiful, a beautiful place. You've effectively found a way to live in this new land, and at the same, sort of be at peace with it. <coughs> yeah. And it's it's an interesting cycle. You've made this... You've made this run, going back to when I met you in 1975, you soon thereafter bought the land in um, AdSet, yeah. and then you've made this run and been part of this. And What lessons you might want to give us about being part of the land and being part of communal situations and so forth? Oh, God, that's a hard one. I know it's a hard one. It, it's, quite, it's quite crucial that we, having had a communal life, we've then actually found a similar situation in a much wilder place, but we are enjoying living in virtual isolation. Yes. Although we're only two and a half kilometres from a, a proper practical, very practical town of Riparu. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with cinema and sh- loads we have, of we have, shops. We have um, lots of friends, you know, mm-hmm. we, um, people visit us from England, our family visits, we feel completely non-cut-off. I'm loving learning the language. Mm-hmm. The, on the communal aspect, I think it's more for young people, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, they evolve and nothing ever stays the same and the mm-hmm. relationships that you go into it with are ever-evolving, some mm-hmm. for the better, some for the worse. Mm-hmm. Most com- most communes at work, I think, have to be united around an idea, mm-hmm. and they only really, from my reading of history, usually last a generation or a generation and a half. I mean, Amish people might carry on a bit longer, and, right. but you know, on the whole, they tend to fizzle out. And there's problems of succession as well. What happens when right. the children, when when people get older and stuff, and what's going to happen, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. I think ours was quite well set up so you could actually leave and come out with some capital and then it, it did run its day. Yeah. It, it had run its day. It ran its day and lots of new lives came out of it. Your yeah. kids, your yeah. your three fabulous daughters. And um, here you are in this great place. And uh, the night we arrived, um, we heard screech owls. And it's really quite rustic here. And it's a beautiful place. It's Pretty silent easy. at night. There's not, you can't hear other human beings. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And and I, I, increasingly, as, as I've got older, I've loved just being closer and closer and closer to the natural world and observing in detail and all the insect life and the cycles and the yearly cycle and everything. And it's become a real utter fascination of you know of how the whole thing pieced the whole, how ecosystems piece together. And if and each day should be, you should try and make a new discovery of some little facet that you haven't quite noticed before. You know, like might be a dragonfly laying eggs on a bit of gravel. Or, Something like that. Just and you think, wow! Never. It's been in front of my eyes for the whole of my life, but I've never seen that. that and it's, it's a time because that comes with retirement, I think. Although we're still working like dogs, mm-hmm. it, it, with that you can just take that time out to sort of dream and watch. And we're able to recycle virtually everything. everything. With a compost toilet, chickens, a compost heap, and us eating, we, we and sharing <laughs> with other people. But you're still well on your way to that, and you've carved out another little piece of paradise. I hope so. It, it feels, feels like it. Us. We're very yeah. blessed. We're very blessed. Yeah. We've had a very blessed life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think this is a good place to pause, and I thank you very much, mm-hmm. uh, Sheila and Peter, and it's, it's been great. Thanks yeah. a whole bunch. Thank you. 
thanks to our artists of the show, Peter and Sheila Jowers. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack of all trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.